Lynn Hiles Ministries presents Dr. Lynn Hiles That You Might Have Life. And here's your host, Dr. Lynn Hiles. I want to uh, welcome you back to the program today again, and thank you for joining us uh, in this great, great series that we've been doing on Roadmap to Reformation. And hopefully in the next couple of weeks, we will be able to wrap this series up. Uh, It's been such a blessing to me uh, to just, uh, you know, to really study this. And it seems like the more I get into it, the more it has really helped me to connect some dots historically as it relates to even other writers in the Scriptures, and how all of this pointed to a messianic fulfillment that would happen in the day of Jesus with ongoing results clear up into our day. I believe God is a God of restoration. I believe He's a God of reformation. And I believe He is in the business of bringing His people out of exile and out of bondage. You know, there is this return from Uh, exile, uh, an exodus paradigm, all the way through the Scriptures, and we've dealt with that quite a bit in our ministry, uh, as we showed you many times that all through the Scriptures in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are constantly alluding to, uh, uh, if you will, Old Testament pictures in types and shadows that under Moses was a picture of the redemption that Jesus would ultimately fulfill, because we know how Moses brought a lamb out from the sheep and the goats, and that we know that Jesus was the Lamb, and that their exodus began uh, with the death of a Lamb, and we know that Jesus is identified as the spotless Lamb in the River Jordan with John the Baptist, and another exodus began with the death of Jesus on the cross, and it was the beginning of an exodus this time out of uh, not a physical Egypt, but a spiritual bondage of Egypt in the New Testament. We see several things in parallels, like uh, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead, but Jesus says, I am the true bread that came down from heaven, that if a man eat this, he'll live. As a matter of fact, in this book right here, this is, by the way, my newest book, and you need to really get this book. This is probably a very important piece of work I've done But I have an entire chapter there where Jesus feeds the multitude and the 5,000. And it's such a powerful parallel of the Exodus journey because we see, uh, for instance, uh, in in John chapter 5 where He feeds this 5,000 that they just left the Feast of Passover and they crossed the Sea of Tiberias and they're in the wilderness and the people are hungry. If I was a first century Jew there, something in my mind would have went, wait a minute, I've seen this picture somewhere else in the Scriptures. Well, where else did they see it? When Moses led them out of Egypt after the Passover, and they crossed the Red Sea, and now they're in the wilderness, and the people are hungry. In the wilderness, God gave them manna to eat. In John chapter 5, they come to Jesus and say, the people are hungry. Send them away that they might buy meat to eat. And Jesus says to His disciples, you feed them, for He Himself knew what He would do. The reason He knew what He would do is because this is not the first time He ever fed a multitude in the wilderness. He fed them in the wilderness with with Moses. He takes the bread, He blesses the bread, He multiplies it, He gives it to the multitude. He's just fed 5,000 people 
with five loaves of bread and two small fish. And in that setting, after the Passover, after they cross the sea and they're in the wilderness, the people look at Jesus and said, what sign will you show us that you're in fact the Christ? And Jesus quotes this. He simply says to them, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they're dead, but I am the true bread. That's one of the I am's in this book. I am the true bread. In other words, you thought that was the bread. That's not the bread. I am the true bread that comes down from God out of heaven. I think Jesus probably would have stood there and thought, when they said, what sign will you show us? I don't know how you would be. I would like to think that if I'd just seen Jesus feed 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two small fish and take up 12 baskets full, I think I would have went, what sign do you show me? Duh. I mean, what more could you want other than to see that he physically did for them the exact same repeat miracle that he did in the wilderness trying to signify to them this is another exodus. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah speak to him of his decease. Here's the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration talking to Jesus concerning his decease. The Greek word for decease there is the Greek word exodus. So they're showing an exodus paradigm, a coming out of exile. But in this series, as I've done this series on Ezra and Nehemiah, I am seeing another return from exile. But this time you see uh, a return from the exile from Babylonian captivity. And I showed you before in prior segments how that the Babylon in Revelation was apostate Israel and and, and uh, it was it was apostate Jerusalem was the harlot city that was identified by Jesus as being the city where the blood of the martyrs had been spilled and when you get to Revelation the great harlot is is accounted with and charged with the death of all of the martyrs that only fits one city when Jesus pointed at it in Matthew twenty three and said upon this generation will come the blood of all that were slain on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zacharias, whom you slew between the porch and the altar. And he tells them, you will fill up then the measure of your father's sin, that upon you will come the blood of all them. That's what happened in Revelation, is that that apostate city was called Great Babylon. So the exile from there into the New Jerusalem is the picture or the pattern of the exile that we are studying from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, I think it's incredibly interesting that in my study yesterday, I found that there were 42, 42 stopping stations from Egypt into the Promised Land, all of which have a spiritual significance of where people may be at in their journey. But I also discovered yesterday another incredible parallel that there were 42 sets of workers that that were employed in the rebuilding of the city of God under Ezra and Nehemiah. In other words, this whole pattern and picture is trying to show you a return from the bondage of some kind of slavery. And in the mind of a first century Jew, salvation had to do with a return from exile. It is a breaking free of bondage. And you know what's amazing is I was thinking... Uh, you know, just recently, because uh, our Independence Day just passed not long ago, I was thinking of this, the incredible scripture 
in Galatians uh, chapter 5 where it says, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, and be not again entangled in the yoke of slavery. He tells you on down in Matthew, or not in Matthew 5, but Galatians 5, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. No longer to be entangled in that yoke of slavery. And when we, you know, as I grew up, I remember them preaching, you know, stand fast in the liberty where Christ has made you free. And we made that primarily about some kind of sin in your life. But context is everything. And what Paul is writing to the Galatians about is a freedom from the bondage of the old covenant Judaism, laws, circumcisions, and the law of Moses. He's talking about being made free and the liberty that he was declaring. Listen, the reason they were being so persecuted in the first century was because they were preaching a message that seemed to be diametrically opposed to the performance-based religious hierarchy that the scribes and Pharisees had created, and that uh, it was all about circumcision. It was all about long prayers for pretense. It was living under the bondage of law and legalism. And I don't really realize, I don't know that we really fully realize that what he's trying to bring to the first century was a freedom from the tyranny of that bondage. So when he says to them, stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made you free, be not again entangled in the yoke of slavery, he's talking about not going back up under the law. And if you read that in Galatians 5, you'll find out in the very a few verses below that he'll talk about if you go back up under circumcision and you go back up under the law, you have fallen from grace. Falling from grace does not mean you sinned on Saturday night. Falling from grace means you went back up under the law to be justified by works rather than justified by the faith of Jesus Christ. Actually, this Mifkat gate sometimes was interchanged with the prison gate. Uh, so, you know, when I it, sometimes it was called the prison gate. And I know we did a se- several segments before this on the prison gate. But I believe that one of the prisons that God is setting you free from is, of course, yes, He wants to set you free from sin. But what He wants to do as well is set you free. I think it's easier to get people set free from sin than it is from the bondage of religion and from the bondage of performance-based uh, Christianity that is a mixture of Judeo Christianity. It is God is not calling us to be Jewish. He's and I'm not anti-Semitic. I'm just pro-Jesus. I think what Jesus is doing is calling Jews and Gentiles. Read Romans 11 to be connected to the same root because it's not the branches that make you holy. It's being connected to the right root. It's being in Christ whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, we are made one in Christ. And that's what this Mifkat gate is about. It's about the gate of gathering. It's about being set free from the bondages of your prison that you've been held in captivity to. It is about the place where they gathered and were numbered. Let me just read a few things. After This is from uh, Nehemiah 3. We're talking about the Mifkat gate. This is the last gate we're going to deal with in the 12 gates of Nehemiah, talking about entrances into this Reformation. And uh, this gate was, uh, after him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the Nethanim and of the merchants in front of the Mifkad gate. So there's the text for it. And as far as the upper room to the corner, and between the upper room at the corner, as far as the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants made repairs. The final gate is the gate of inspection, 
It's called sometimes the prison gate, the Mifkad gate, the muster gate, or the gate of gathering. The words appointed place, the word where it says appointed place is in the Hebrew, the word is the word Mifkad. Mifkad comes from the verb, verb quadad, which means to number. The gate of the city that led to the appointed place was called the Mifkad gate. Uh, the Mifkad gate referred to Nehemiah chapter 3 and was located on the east wall just north of the east gate leading to the temple, and the Mifkad gate opened under the road uh, leading up to the Mount of Olives just north of the place where the bodies were to be burned. And these were the bodies of the sacrifices, many times of the sin offering. Jesus was crucified outside the city, and just like the bodies of those beasts were burned, He encourages us in the Hebrews to go outside the city and bear His reproach. In other words, the gathering place is to go outside the city and identify with that sacrifice that the death of Jesus was my death. And in the last segment, now let me just tell you this, because I think that he's talking about the appointed place. He's talking about the Mifkad gate. He's talking about the gate of inspection or the gate of the judgment. And so what I shared with you in the last segment was especially the fact that the sin offering, which was Jesus Christ, was an offering that was made outside uh, the city, first of all. But what I showed you is that in that old covenant pattern of the type and shadow of the lamb was that when the sinner would bring the lamb before the high priest, he would come and lay his hands on the head of the, uh, of the lamb, confess his sin, then he would step back. And then the high priest would would inspect the lamb. Watch this. This is the important thing. I want to stress this. It was the lamb that was inspected, not the sinner. The inspection of the lamb, the basis of our, our being received in this new covenant is on the basis of how spotless the lamb was. And when the high priest said it's a spotless lamb, and I showed you how that the Pilate inspected Jesus, the high priest inspected him. Judas declared, I have betrayed innocent blood. The lamb was spotless. And on the basis of that inspection, you were uh, declared to be sanctified according to Hebrews 10, and you were declared to be perfect. Let me read this to you from... Uh, from uh, Hebrews 9, and let me just see if we can, let me just uh, uh, skip down here and get, uh, 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 this is verse 23, it, therefore it was necessary, I'm going to read to you from the New King James Bible concerning this sacrifice, and then we'll go into chapter 10 of Hebrews. Therefore it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves were better sacrifices than these. For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he's our representative. Our high priest is the representative as he uh, is now in the presence of God, not against us, but for us. Nor that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood of another, he then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the end of the ages, He has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Jesus did that at the end 
of the old covenant age is he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. And to them that look, let me, uh, and it's appointed men to once to die, but after this, the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. So what he's, I want to tell you that this inspection gate or this place where we are gathered before, it speaks of the judgment seat of Christ somewhat or the judgment that God is bringing to humanity. But what I want you to see is that His judgment was your judgment. Now I'm talking to believers and to people who will appropriate this because that's what, uh, uh, when you put the blood of the Lamb on the doorpost of your house, that's what brings you to an exodus. When you identify with this, you go outside the gate and you identify with what He's done, then you have been called to the appointed place. See, because here's the deal. And and, and Hebrews 9, it says, And as it is appointed for men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Now, we quote that and we stop there, but I want to get this. The Mithcad gate speaks of the appointed place. It speaks of the place of gathering, or the mustering, or the gathering literally of the nations. Now, let me just tell you that it tells you then in Hebrews here that this appointed place, it's appointed. What's the appointed place? It's appointed unto men once to die, and after that, the judgment. So we leave it there as if, okay, all of us are going to die, and we're going to stand judgment. But we never read the next verse because the uh, antidote or the solution for the fact that we've got appointment once to die, and then after that, the judgment, here's the answer. So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and to those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin to salvation. So what He's showing you is that Jesus was your appointment with death and with judgment, so that for believers, listen, the only issue is he that believeth is justified, he that believeth not is condemned already, is what John's gospel said. So you you stand in an hour where you have been brought to a place of mustering and a place that was appointed to find out that his death was your death and that the offering of, that he offered once and for all was the sin offering once at the end of the old covenant age to put away your sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he's not standing daily offering over and over and over the same sins for himself and for the sins of the people. He has brought this incredible uh, gathering to this appointed place and this Mifkad gate and became our judgment. Now let me just read on as we come on down through 10 then. It says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Now you really need to go back and watch last week's segment on YouTube if you haven't seen this, because I'm talking about perfection on the basis of a sacrifice. It says, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect, for then would he not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. 
and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do your will, O God. See, outside of the Mifkad gate was where the bodies of these beasts were to be burned. But Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice so that there would never have to be another animal sacrifice again because a body you have prepared, prayer, you have prepared for me. And he said, previously saying, previously saying, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. And then he said, behold, I have come to do your will of God. He takes away the first, that's the first covenant, that he might establish the second, that's the new covenant. By the, that will, we have been sanctified. Now I want you to get this. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. He did it once and for all. And then it goes on to say, And every high priest stands ministering, daily offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and, and hearts and in their minds, and I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and lawless deeds I will remember there no more, now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an, any offering for sin. So let me tell you, he tells you that this, full, this mustering gate, this place of judgment was fully met in Christ. So as you go outside the city to identify with that, you are coming to the place of gathering and you are coming to the place of mustering. It was also the place in the Old Testament where they gave the temple tax. But one thing I wanted you to see here, and we might be able to go into this a little bit more perhaps even in the next segment, is not only is this the appointed place, or the word mifkat, which means the appointed place, or the place of mustering, it was the place where uh, they were taxed. It was called the mifkat gate. It, this Mifkad gate was, uh, it, it, the Mifkad gate referred to in Nehemiah 3 was located on the east wall, just north of the east gate, uh, leading to the temple. The Mifkad gate opened onto the road leading up to the Mount of Olives, just north where the bodies were burned of the sacrifices. The road to the Mifkad, or appointed place where people registered for the temple tax, each person or the, had to have a head count. That's, it, that's why it's called the place of mustering, or each place had a head count. They were taxed at this location. This is what I want you to see. The word Golgotha used in the Gospels to describe the place of crucifixion is an Aramic word which suggests this area of registry known as the Mifkad, because we're talking about a head count. We're talking about the place of the skull. We're talking about Golgotha. And Golgotha was the place of the head count where we were crucified 
with Christ and where we were gathered with Him. Uh, it goes on to say that, uh, it, it, that the word Golgotha used in the Gospels to describe the place of crucifixion is an Aramaic word which suggests that this area of registry known as Mifkad. The related Hebrew word bears the same meaning, Golgotha, which means skull, head, or pole. It is the head count. Uh, now, I, what I want you to see is that one of the things that really hit me powerfully is this. Golgotha also comes from the word Goliath of Gath. Legend has it, and I've got other places in my studies. As a matter of fact, it's in one of my books here somewhere. My sources on it, I'd have to look it up. But the word Golgotha is literally, uh, legend has it, it's the place where the head of Goliath was buried. When David cut the head of the giant off, and they took it to bury the head of Goliath, it was put at Golgotha, called the place of the skull. And that powerfully spoke to me. Maybe I'll, I'll take more time and deal with this in the next segment a little bit. But the place of the skull, the place where the big giant was dealt with. You know, I want to say this to somebody listening to me. Goliath did not come to destroy you. He came to promote you. And sometimes in the biggest battles we fight, it's not for our destruction, it's for our promotion. But what I want you to see is that David, which to me speaks of the greater son of David, David being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, was the one man who represented all of Israel. The challenge of the enemy, the challenge of the Philistines was give me one man, and if one man defeats us, then we will surrender to you and you will win the battle. If one man wins the victory, the whole country wins the victory. I want you to know that one man, Jesus Christ, won the victory. And He did it, hallelujah, with when He slayed the big giant. And He took the head of Goliath and He Listen, he came there and he came to bring sustenance to his brothers, to bring them, I believe it was bread and wine, if I'm not mistaken, or some raisins and some figs, and to bring them something to eat. And he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would stand and defy the armies of the living God? And Jesus, uh, just like David, goes down into the valley. He slays the big giant, cuts his head off, defeats the devil, takes care of all the enemies so that the victory of just one man, I hope you're seeing this as I'm sharing this today, just like Hebrews 9, by one offering, Hebrews 10, He has perfected forever them that are sanctified, that He appeared once to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He cut the head off of the big giant at the Mifkad gate, at Golgotha, at the place where the judgment was dealt with to all of your enemies. And, you know, there's so much could be said about Goliath, and perhaps we can get there a little bit more in the later time. But I want you to know that he cut the head of this giant off with a sword and buried his head at Golgotha. It was a one-man deal, and the whole nation won. You're a winner today. The victory's already yours, and your judgment as a believer is not in your future. It's in your past. We're about to run out of time. Join us again next week as we continue this study, and I believe you'll be blessed. If you'd like to sow a seed into this ministry, we do need your help to be able to do this. Go to my website. It's the easiest way. You can give via credit card or debit card through our PayPal uh, place there, 
And you can also set up a monthly debit if you'd like to become a partner. Or you can send a check or money order to Lynn Howes Ministries to the address that will come on the screen. Or you can call the number on the screen. God bless you and thank you for joining us. God bless you. I am excited to announce the release of my latest book titled The Great I Am. In this book, we will explore the seven times in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I am. When he uses that phrase, it is always in contrast to something from the Old Covenant. For instance, they thought Moses and the law was the door into the sheepfold, but Jesus said to them, I am the door. They thought that Israel was the true vine, but Jesus said to them, I am the vine, you are the branches. As you read the pages of this book, you will discover that Jesus removed the covenant of death and replaced it with the covenant of life. Get your copy of the book, The Great I Am, today.